Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to the Everyday is a New Day show. My name is Kim O'Neill, and I'm excited to be here with you again for another inspiring conversation with a guest who is doing some really wonderful things out there in the world. But before we get to that, let's quickly take a moment to bring our focus into the present moment. That is where most of your, where all of your power is. And so we can simply do that by shaking off yesterday. Shake it off literally through physical movement. Shake it off by saying mm, next and whatever thoughts are coming through, you are not your thoughts. You get to choose what thoughts you identify with, which ones you own, which ones you choose to be in align with. And I want you to always remember that you get to choose. With that said, I hope you take a quick, deep breath in, <sighs> feeling free and clear, being full in your power right here, right now. And I'm going to go ahead and give you a heads up because what we're about to talk about today is we're going to be talking with Richard Vyasana today about his new book called Do No Harm. And there's a separate tagline, but I added here, we're going to be talking about reuniting foster and immigrant children with their families because he's been doing this work for, for over three decades now. And um, it's pretty inspiring uh, to the lengths that he's helping people. Before we get to that, I want to share with you a quote that I think lines up with today's show and I found very inspiring. And it's so long, it's in two pieces here. So let's begin with the first piece. You may not always have a comfortable life and you will not always be able to solve all of the world's problems at once, but don't ever underestimate the importance you can have because history has shown us that courage can be contagious and hope can take on a life of its own. And that's by Michelle Obama. And I just hope whatever's going on in your world, if you're finding that, you know, it's time for more courage in your life, or maybe you think that hope is beginning to run out, I want to remind you there is never an ending to hope. Never. There is always, always, always hope. I hope you can take that with you with whatever's going on in your world today. Okay, let's get into today's guest. I'm going to share with you a little bit about him, and then we're going to bring him up on screen. Today's guest is, of course, Richard Vyasana, founder of Forever Homes for Foster Kids. He is a leading international authority featured on CNN, International Associated Press, ABC TV, Univision, Wish TV, Costco Connections, and The Washington Post. He's also a proud Navy veteran, and for three decades... His nonprofit has worked with government agencies across the country to find family members of foster and immigrant children to give them a permanent home. He is now the author of the new book, Do No Harm, which is about the immigrant children separations and this country's, the U.S., foster care crisis. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and bring up Richard on screen. Welcome, Richard. Hello. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Ah, oh, you know, I, I just want to begin with a simple, just checking in with you. How, how are you doing today? What's going on in your world? Oh, it's been busy with the book launch. Yes. Yeah, well, let's let's go ahead and give everyone a picture of what your book looks like. I, um, I know you have a copy there. I'm going to go ahead and put it up on screen. You just launched your brand new book, Do No Harm. And of course, the for all of our audio only listeners, the no is slashed out. Do harm. The U.S. border child tragedy continues. Um, this title sends such a huge, huge message. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you. There's so much we could look at here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you take it. Where would you like to begin with our conversation today? 
Well, we can start with the immigrant crisis and talk about that, and specifically about what happened in 2017. So some people may have seen some things in the news. They may have seen pictures of children in cages. One of the reasons I wrote the book, though, is that there's so many pieces of this, and trying to pull it all together is really a daunting task. And so I'm involved with it, and I'll go a little bit more into that in just a moment. But the best place to start is what got me onto this path, especially with writing the book, was that in 2017, the U.S. government, they had just hundreds of thousands of people coming up from Central and South America to the U.S. border, and they were overwhelmed. And so they came up with a plan, and that plan was to initiate a program called Zero Tolerance. Now, Zero Tolerance essentially because they were going to do this to everybody. So if a parent came with their child, whether they had papers or not, many of them did, they would still separate the child from the parent. So the child would go in one direction, the parents would go into another direction. And this is important for for us to define here because before that time, this did not happen. We did not separate children from their parents. Yeah, what did happen before? What was the process like before? uh, They would simply uh, keep them together and then they would go before a judge and they would set a court date, and then essentially they would let the family stay in the U.S. and uh, stay with a relative or someplace. And but they would stay in the U.S. and they would stay together. That's the big point. So they didn't have a need for government facilities to house anybody. And uh, our law was such that once someone set foot on U.S. soil, they could ask legally for asylum. And it says very clearly in the law, it doesn't matter how they got to the U.S., it doesn't matter if they climbed over a fence or they came through a port of entry, once they set foot on U.S. soil, they were legally able to ask for asylum and be accorded all the protections and all the legal process we have in this country. With this pilot program, and it's important when I say pilot program because unofficial, okay. the zero tolerance was initiated in early 2017. And they made clear to everyone, all the agencies along the border, if you find someone, we're going to separate them. Kids one direction, parents from the other. And the idea was that this would be so painful, so horrible that nobody would want to come. Or at least the numbers would certainly drop off. Right. Wow. So this went on until 2018 and 2018 they made it an official policy march april and once they did that there were people who were already standing in line especially the aclu who came to the courts and said look this is wrong and the courts agreed they said yes this is a violation the way they're processing these people and the way that they're pushing them out and deporting them violates our fifth amendment of due process And so with that ruling, the administration in 2018 was forced to stop. Now, has it stopped? No, it hasn't. There's still lots of back and forth and pockets here and there where people honestly are saying, no, it it hasn't stopped. It has certainly stopped at the levels that was happening. Okay. By that time, 
we had thousands of families. And again, this is one of those things that more investigation, more goes on. We're now at a number of about 5,000 plus families that were separated from their children. Oh in 2018, there was an executive order that was um, put out by the Trump administration. And it said, we're going to reunite these kids. Okay. But we hit a snag. We hit a very serious problem. The government had no plans on how to track these people. They had nothing in place that was tracking them from the time that they went into these holding cells and into these federal facilities and the ones who were deported. Nobody was tracking them. And so now you have these 5,000 families and no really good records so that people could be matched up. They weren't matched by you know children to parents. They weren't matched up by information so you could find them in another country. There was really no plan to reunite these people. And so now the government says, we're going to do this. And the government doesn't know how to do this. And I was actually interviewed by ABC that same day. And they said, what do you think? I said, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And I said back then, and it's amazing how you can say something at one point and you don't realize how real and how true and accurate that was. I said, some families will never be reunited. And that is the truth. Some families will never be reunited with their children. Do so, we have any idea of how many, you mentioned that 5,000 families were separated. Do we have any idea what the number is today? How many are still separated? The latest total came out of, about uh, two months ago, that 600 families had been reunited. Okay. So we're only talking about 10%. We're now going into the sixth year for some of these wow. families that they have not seen their child. Some of these children were as young as six months old. Some may have been younger. That's the youngest of the cases that we handled. And so, um, you know, think about that, that for some of these parents, they did didn't hear, see them walk. They didn't see them talk. They didn't see them doing all these things that people hope to see their children do at two and three and four years old. They haven't seen any of this. It's, it's an unfathomable concept. And to know that it's real is bizarre. Um, and I just want to say, I mean, I know there's, we're not getting into any sort of other like political topics and stuff. I know people have various issues with immigration, but to me, it's like it this has nothing to do with immigration like you there's nothing right about separating families bottom line there's nothing right about that i don't i don't really understand how that ever became an option for people to consider um i you know i don't i don't i don't know but tell tell us more about what you and your nonprofit do for foster kids so what we do is something similar to what we've been doing for the federal government so uh, let me just backtrack for a moment. So when these children come, came in and were separated, they went to an organization on the federal side. And that organization essentially works the same way as foster care does with U.S. citizens. And that is they try to find them someone, a, a relative to match them up with. And that's what they did on the federal side with these immigrant children. They found it, what they called a sponsor. Usually that sponsor was actually a parent or an aunt or an uncle, or maybe some adult relative, and they place the child with that person. And at that time for the majority of the kids, the federal government was like, okay, we've done our job. We've got them at least safely with someone. We've vetted them. 
and they're in good hands with family. Okay. Now let's flip over to the uh, foster care side. So when a child comes into foster care, agencies are required by law to jump into action and try to find a relative that they can place that child with. And so, you know, they've been removed from their parents, but maybe there's an aunt, uncle, a grandparent that's in the neighborhood or can be reached quickly. And so maybe that same day or within a matter of days, that child could be placed with that relative and they're in what we call kinship care. And that's the desired outcome. We want the kids to be as comfortable as possible. Kids did not do anything. They're victims when it comes to foster care. Kids are removed about 18% of the time because of physical or sexual abuse. And the rest of it is from neglect or criminal activity. Or honestly, some parents, you know, something happens. They are physically incapable of caring for the child or mentally uh, able to care for the child. So however they come in, this right. is the process. Try to find a relative to get them connected. Now, that's easy if you've got people who have been in the U.S. and they've got three generations and everyone's pretty much like living in Oklahoma or living in California. All right. That's easy. Yeah. But let's face it. We are a melting pot and we have people coming from around the world. And so you may have some children who have relatives because of their parents who are living in Asia. If you're along the southern part of the United States, but not necessarily just in the southern part of the United States, those children, especially if they're Latino, have relatives who are living south of the border. Anywhere, it could be Mexico, Central, or South America. And if they're on the East Coast, well, chances are they may have relatives over in Europe. My specialty has been with the Latino children because I spent years working as an international marketer for U.S. Corp, uh, companies in Latin America. So I've dealt with every country that speaks Spanish in Latin America, except for Cuba. Wow. So when these children come in and they've got relatives in another country, well, that's training that caseworkers don't have. They have to speak another language, Spanish. They have to be able to read the documents. They have to be able to understand what they're reading. So just because they can say the words doesn't mean that makes sense to them. And they're like, oh, yes, I know exactly what to do, which is not the case. So throughout the country, agencies will bring us their cases when they have a child who has relatives known to be in Mexico. And we take over. And can I share a quick story? Absolutely. Please do. Okay. This will kind of make uh, clear what we do. So there were three girls. They were very young. They were four, eight, and ten. And they were in foster care. And the caseworkers knew from the girls that they had two aunts living in Chicago. But because of the ages, the girls didn't have phone numbers and they didn't have addresses. They just knew that Auntie Martha lived in Chicago. And so despite best efforts, the caseworkers could not find those relatives. But they did have enough information to know that they had some relatives living in Mexico. So they brought that information to us and look, could you do this? Absolutely. Two weeks later, we had found contact information, phone numbers, gave that to the caseworker. So on a Saturday, the caseworker is on the phone. She has a translator with her. She's calling down to Mexico. She gets one of the uncles. She's talking to the uncle. And at some point she says, by the way, do you happen to know anything about two aunts living in Chicago? He says, wait a minute. Wait, some seconds, a woman comes on the line 
and the caseworker introduces herself and says the same thing and then asks, do you know anything about these two aunts who are living in Chicago? She says, of course I do. I'm one of them. The two aunts were having coffee in the next room. They had flown. Yes, exactly. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, they had flown down. They were visiting for that week. And that's when the phone call came in. Is when they returned from being at a restaurant. They were just having afternoon coffee. Wow. And, um, of course, when they found out about the three girls, they said, of course, we'll take them in. So they oh. flew back, made arrangements, and the three girls are now living with their two aunts in Chicago. Okay, so the what's being highlighted here for me is that's the difference between knowing Spanish. Is that what it boils down to in this story? Knowing Spanish and knowing what to do. Um, and what to do. Because the, the work that we did, um, we did in two weeks, number one. That's which, amazing. Which is amazing, yes. Uh, especially internationally. And because there are some counties that they're looking for relatives for months. And wow. so the fastest I've ever closed a case has been 48 hours. So wow, it all you? depends upon the amount of information we get. You know, the stars have to be aligned. Everything <laughs> has to work out, but it can be that fast. And uh, just because we've been doing this for so long and we know what to do. And uh, the other part is training. So just speaking a language doesn't help someone know what government agency to call, how to explain this to them, how to track the information. Also, what happens if you don't have enough information, quote, quote. So I'll give you an example quickly. We had a case that we did for the federal government. We had the name of the mother. We had one other piece of identification about the mother, and they told us she lived in Honduras. Okay. Wow. Now, that's like someone saying, I want you to find Kim O'Neill, and she lives in the United States. And there's plenty of Kim O'Neills, by the way. <laughs> Absolutely. And this same thing happens in, you know, these different countries. The last names are not so special. And then that's assuming there's a database, which there isn't. And that's assuming you can pay $10 to go to U.S. search and track someone you can't. These are all things that you can do in the U.S. And even in the U.S., they only have about an 80 to 85% success rate. So, which is about the same level of success that we have when we're doing this work internationally. But that's what we do. That is our specialty, okay. is that we come in on very desperate situations where the child has relatives somewhere in Latin America, Brazil, Argentina, Dominican Republic, Central America, Mexico, We've done it all, and we find those relatives. And what happens is exactly like the story. I don't know of a case where the child was sent away because the parents or relatives will always say, oh, there's a great uncle in Dallas. Oh, the girl's in Austin? Th there you go. Or we've got an aunt living in L.A., or we've got an uncle living in Atlanta. They will gladly give up that information so the child stays in the U.S., and which for people who may be listening, most of the people who are in the U.S. foster care system who are Latino are U.S. born children to a U.S. born parent. So they are U.S. born citizens. And we certainly don't have the um, 
we're not in the habit of sending people to another country they've never lived in and have never seen and don't right. speak the language. So it all makes sense there. Uh, but mm -hmm. I want to explain it because people may think, you know, someone may think, oh, you know, all these immigrant kids. That still makes a small portion of the U.S. foster care community when it comes to Latino children, which is about 90,000 children each year. Say, okay, 90, say that again, 90,000 what exactly? 90,000 immigrant of, children or foster children? Of uh, the 400 to 420 thousand children that are in foster care every year oh my god 90,000 are specifically latino wow. and of that group only a very small percentage are immigrant kids okay the vast majority of those 90,000 are you know the kids are going to school kids who are friends with you know someone the other you know kids and they're u.s citizens with the u.s parents so they are solidly here in the u.s and uh, I just want to explain it because sometimes people mix the two and say, oh, my goodness, we're being overrun by immigrant kids. No, we're not. No. No, thank you for explaining that. Um, and that number, both of those numbers are just outrageous. So 420,000 foster kids. Um, and I know the U.S. doesn't have orphanages. Uh, and the... So what what happens currently today with America's foster kids? What what is the arrangement and situation that they have if while they're waiting for their family to be found or or maybe no family is ever found for them? Well, a couple of things. So if a family isn't found, let's address that one. Then they stay in foster care and they bounce from foster home to foster home. They may go into a group home, uh, depending if they have any kind of special needs, if they have any kind of um, you know, trauma or some kind of mental anguish where they need mental, you know, treatment. Right. So they may be an institution that's specially uh, able to, to handle a child who needs that kind of care. Uh, it just all depends. Uh, one of the worst place, places to go, though, is group homes because you don't have someone who's focused on that child. Right. You know, the children aren't coming home. They're not getting someone who gives them a hug. They're not having someone who bakes cookies for them or helps them with their homework. And so it's a very tough environment <sighs> like that. And we right now have a very serious crisis that we don't have enough foster parents. So kids are sleeping in hotel rooms. They're sleeping in offices on the floor. They're sleeping in the break rooms. You know, and imagine a child, any child, being stuck in an office all day. Oh or when they gosh. come back from school, they're going straight into the break room or into an office. I don't care how nice the office is. It's an office. And they're sleeping under a desk or on top of a desk or on an inflated mattress. And this is their life. And this is what we have now for our U.S. foster kids. Wow. This is how we're treating them. And uh, this has gotten only worse because of COVID because Many of the foster parents that were active, some have died. Some have pulled back because they have health issues. Grandparents who were wonderful stepping in and taking in their grandchildren, well, they've died or they have health issues, so they can't do it. They can't take the risk. And so we've lost hundreds of thousands of these foster parents 
And so we have this all throughout the U.S. and every state. They're all begging for foster parents to come in and adoptive parents. And we just have too many kids and not enough homes. And on top of that, as you asked, they just move from home to home on average twice a year. Oh, wow. So think about that. You're in the system for five years and you've changed 10 homes, 10 different ways of eating. Two, you know, 10 different ways of doing your bed or how, how long we let you watch TV or our religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. It's, oh, and my gosh. These are just kids and they're trying to get a grip on what's going on. And six months later, someone's got a whole different religious pattern for them. And I'm not picking on religion specifically. I mean, I'm just saying, though, that could be challenging for a child. One minute is thinking one way or told to think one way, or they go into a home and they say, no, we don't think that way. Right. So all these things cause instability, which impact the child when it comes to being at school and how they interact with other kids. So these are terrible things. And the worst that can happen, which does to 23,000 kids a year, is that they age out at the age of 18. They just they lose their home. So yesterday they had a home. They had dinner. Today, they go to school, maybe, and they come home. They pack their bags, put them in a trash bag, whatever clothes they have, and they're now in a new home. Oh, not a new home in this case. They're on the street. This is so devastating. Um, And so for those, uh, for the kids who are getting close to aging out, are, I believe there are, but do you have more insight into what what programs are at least available to them? I mean, this, this is not the focus of our conversation, but I'm, I'm wondering, and I want, I'm sure other people are too. Um, are, are there programs in place to help them with job readiness and to secure a new home and things like that? Or- yes and no. So there are programs, there are agencies out there. Uh, when I say yes and no, it's because it all it, it's so individualized. Okay. It all depends upon the quality of the program, how well they get the word out. So there was an article uh, that we posted today on our Facebook, and it was about a girl. She was 18 years old. She was a foster kid, and she was at the bus stop, and she had no place to go. She called up her caseworker to say, can you help me? Can you bring me in? Give me a place to sleep. And the caseworker said, I can't help you. So she ended up going home with a bus driver. Oh, wow. Yes. And then later she was making contact with like an outreach program and they got a phone call because she was going to be sleeping in a cemetery and it was freezing cold. And so they came to pick her up from a cemetery so they could give her some shelter. This is what happens to our kids who age out of foster care. They end up underneath bridges on the street. They're totally alone, vulnerable. And on top of that, upwards of 30% of these kids don't graduate, have not graduated from high school. So they've got their school books with them. If they're lucky, they may have a tablet. Well, guess what's the first thing that's going to get stolen? Their books and their tablet. So they have no place to study, no place to plug in, and they got to find food. All that happens. Now, there are programs called transitional programs that have housing and have other things. And those programs offer great services if the kids can know about it and if the kids can figure out how to do the paperwork. 
And so it's this terrible situation where people will say, yes, we're helping the kids. Well, yes, but are you helping to the point where they can actually take advantage of the help that you're offering the kids? And the answer is no, a lot of times. <sighs> okay, so... Richard, tell us more about how you're you were involved with helping the federal government with the immigrant children. So the thing that the same thing we've been doing with the foster kids, finding their relatives. What happened was we had all these immigrant kids who had gotten separated from their parents. And the government tried to do this by looking for relatives in the United States. That made sense. It was relatively inexpensive to do that hit the databases they may have had some information about where these people lived it's very important to to note 10 percent of the u.s population moves every year so you can imagine after two three years how many of those sponsors that the kids right. were with that no one had made contact with well they're gone they have changed apartments or they had to move out of the apartment because just because they were with a, let's say, a, a father doesn't mean he had a full-time job, doesn't mean he had health care, doesn't mean that he wasn't susceptible to being taken advantage of because of rent increases, we've got inflation. So all those things that happen to people in poverty are happening to the place where these immigrant children were placed. And so... We handled a case where the child was just walking the street, seven-year-old child, just walking the street. Police picked him up, put him into foster care. So, but more specifically, back to what you asked of what we did for the federal government. So yeah. the kids were with the sponsors, um, and well, we're still trying to get them back with the parent. Right. And we may have deported the mother or the father back to their country of origin, and they've lost track of the kids. So they tried to do this finding them domestically, they only had about 30% success rate out of the 500, you know, out of the 5,000 families that they had separated. Okay. And in 2020, they started looking around for, okay, how can we find these relatives in their country of origin, like Guatemala, Honduras, who can help us? And there were some nonprofits that are involved in this other than just us, but some of those cases, they got stuck. They weren't having success. They weren't finding anyone. And so finally in 2021, the powers that be contacted my nonprofit and said, can you help us? And we said, sure. So we came on and we started taking over these cases. And we have closed some of the worst cold cases that, you know, they may have been worked on, but they didn't have success. Or they may not have been worked on for two, three years. Nothing. Wow. And so we got that information. And I think I mentioned this earlier. You know, we might get a case like getting the name of the mother, some other identifiable piece of information that she lives in Honduras. That's a tough one. It was tough for us. That took us some time to figure out how we could work with the system so we could find her. We found her. But all that takes a lot of time. And we have been doing that. So we've been using the expertise we had with foster kids and helping the federal government to close their cases and to okay. find these parents. And so we're still doing that and helping the federal government. So it's the same activity. Just We were doing it for the county and for nonprofits okay. for foster kids. 
now we've been doing it for immigrant kids. You, um, so uh, of course you have the, the, I know it's not all about speaking Spanish, but I want to highlight that again. So you have the, the, that one key thing that helps you with all the, uh, the, his Spanish speaking countries, helping their children, you have that going for you. Plus, you know, specifically what to do to connect those in the U S with those in those Spanish speaking countries. And I'm just wondering, of course you have your hands full already, but are you, are you doing any sort of training to help other people know how to do what you do? So there can be more people helping in a bigger way. We have looked into that. For instance, the activity that we do, it, it's got a specific uh, description. It's called family finding. And family finding is real simple. It's what we did with the girls. The caseworker got a list of names of relatives. That's what they do. And they get the they work to get the contact information. Once they get contact information, they notify them, just as in the story. And so... The idea is if you get enough relatives, somebody's going to step forward and say, yes, I'll take a little Jimmy or a little Maria. And the child now is in kinship care. They're with an aunt, an uncle, grandparent. And that's the activity that we do. And it's been around for three decades. The problem is we have all these people coming out with a bachelor's or a master's in social work, and not one of them has been in a class where the course material talked about family finding. Okay. Nobody's coming out knowing how to do this. And the training that they may get, again, it all depends. Out of Texas, we've got reports that sometimes they may spend anywhere from one hour to two days total on their training. That's it. Before they're let out on the phones, let out with the kids, that's including social workers, like it's huh? that's weird. Including social workers, social workers aren't trained in this. Well, they may be trained in certain aspects, but okay. the training they get at their facility can range anywhere from just an hour to a couple of days. And that's wow. it. Okay. And and think. Okay, so let's talk about it for a second. So keep in mind. Let's say you're working for a company like Spectrum Cable Company. I know. They put their people through a six-week course. Now, they may have made it shorter. Well, okay. one time it was actually eight weeks. Think of that. Six weeks to train someone to answer the phone about the cable you know, problems and the internet. And the people here who are handling children who are traumatized are getting a whopping two days of training at best. And they're not talking about this at the universities. And so when you don't know, Mm -hmm. People aren't looking to get trained in something like that. So we actually did research in 2014, mm -hmm. called a bunch of the counties in California. And half the time we got the, what are you calling about? What's it called? No, we don't have something like that. Are you sure you're calling the right place? So, so this is like at the grassroots level, educating people about what they don't know so that you can eventually hopefully get more people educated to actually help and make change. Oh my gosh. So, so that begs the question. This is why I started to smile. This, this begs the question, Richard Vyasana, are you the one to uh, create this curriculum? <laughs> I am creating that, that curriculum. Okay. I, I'm working on that right now. That is our goal for this year is to get into universities and be doing presentations. And while I don't have a course curriculum that I've designed yet, 
Uh, we have uh, definitely a presentation for both uh, the classroom, for judges, because keep in consideration that caseworkers need to know about this, but judges need to know about this because they're the ones who are in family court. Those are the ones who can determine where the child goes. And they're also the ones who have in the past sometimes told the caseworkers and the agency, you need to do a better job of finding those relatives. And that's made them, force them to look around and they found us. And we handled a case like that out of Florida. He said, well, how did you find out about us? Well, we, we searched, we went online because the judge told us we had to do better. We don't know what better is. And I don't blame them. Look, if you don't know, you don't know. Right. If you're not getting trained properly, it's not that person's fault. Right. So I don't blame caseworkers. I blame management. And this has been a story we have heard in many states where people have called because the judge was saying, I want results. I want to see that you're actually doing the job. And they don't know. So it's a very tough situation where you have agencies who can't train because they don't know. They don't have management who knows how to do this. And even on the domestic side, uh, there's so much information. We do get those cases, just as the one I got from the federal government, where we get a name and they'll say, Puerto Rico. And we're like, there's got to be better details here. Right. How about the age of these people? A, a birthday, something for us to work with. And um, that's super basic and we're having to start at that level with people just to get the fundamentals so we can go to work i think that yeah i think the phrase you don't know what you don't know plays a big role here and it it really brings to mind to, to me when you've got all these different people who who can do something but they can only do like this something and they don't necessarily know that this other thing over here needs to be done and that this piece over here is impacting things and there's all of that and and i feel like you're in a play a position right now where you are the one who's getting to learn and see all the different pieces and how things are not connecting and they need to be better connected so that there can be resolution to this type of situation. Um, and so let's go, let's go to your book because you did just write a book and this is at least one way where we can help uh, tell people more about this situation. So I'm going to put it up on the screen here again. You just wrote do no harm. The U S border child tragedy continues and tell us more about why you wanted to write this book? Well, again, we got brought in by the federal government and we started working the cases. And I saw so many articles that were being written about this situation. And, you know, I, I love reporters. I love the research that they do. But you can only research up to a point if you're not actually doing the work. And I'm the insider. So I know what the material looks like. I know how good or bad it is. And when I said the government had no plans, I can see that. Because the information that we received was really bad. And you have to have a certain level of information to be able to do a search. And again, just like the one with the mother and knowing that she was living in Honduras. It took us months to work with the government agencies to figure out how we could pull that information out. And that's just one country. This is happening all over Latin America. So at one point, I really was 
APIs. I was angry. I was angry at the government for what I thought was a very sloppy job. I was angry at the people who had been involved before we got it, that they had been, in my eyes, professional enough to have cleaned it up. I mean, this is like you coming in for a shift and the last shift leaves and you find out that one area uh, you'd had a delivery and no one bothered to put anything up. You'd be upset or they mm-hmm. left and they didn't clean up. And that's what they're supposed to do. And you're thinking, look, you're paid for this. This is what your job is. How come I'm getting this slop? Right. And so I was very angry when I first started writing the book at how bad it was and, and ultimately how this impacted the children and the families. We're supposed to be doing this. There was an executive order saying we're going to reunify these people. And I'm looking at notes. I'm looking at the information and saying, wow, you people just got a paycheck. You didn't even try. Or some of them did try. You know, to be fair, some people really went out of their way to do a great job. They just didn't hit the mark. But they tried. But not all cases got that same treatment. Some cases got next to no treatment. And nobody trying to reach out to them. So in 2020, 21, when they said we can't find these people, they're right. They had no idea where these people were. Anybody. The kids are gone. The sponsor's gone. And we can't find the parent. That's amazing. And yet the federal government, when they take in people, and a judge mentioned this, we can track their wallet. We can track their watch. But you can't track a child. Something's wrong with that. So I had that same anger when I started writing the book. I, I will say it's tempered a little bit now that I understand it was a lack of training. It was a lack of knowledge. It was a lack of uh, building up a system that could do this and had mm-hmm. the expertise. I'm happy they brought us in and that we were able to step in and bring that expertise. But it certainly is shows a lack of planning and a lack of planning going forward because that's not going to stop. We're going to have these children coming in. We're going to have these children in foster care. We're going to have our own children in foster care and they come from all over. We worked a case of children who were U.S. citizens who had relatives from Brazil. Now we're talking Portuguese. So, uh, uh-huh. and But it's a totally different system compared to doing it in Mexico, compared to doing it in Honduras or El El Salvador. So I I wrote it to pull it all together, like you just said, to pull all of this together and then to talk about foster care and talk about how bad it is. And I don't believe, though, in just griping. So one of the things about the book, there's a chapter specifically about solutions. What can be done? Yes. What can be done by politicians? What can be done by citizens? People can make changes. They can donate their time. They can donate money. They can volunteer. They can become a CASA. There's lots of options that people can be actively helping that take them five minutes and they're done. Or they could spend 15 hours a month and help a child. Or they could donate which is exactly what donations are there to do. Donations are there to take the place of the person giving our, their time so that we can do it and we can go and help these children at a very high level with a very high level of success. So I wrote it to put this all together because unfortunately a lot of foster care out there talks about foster 
parents. Nothing wrong about that, but just how to be a good foster parent, how to become a foster parent or adoptive parent or someone's personal journey in foster care. But it doesn't talk about the whole system. And it certainly doesn't talk about children coming into the system and then being discriminated against and how that discrimination is happening and who's doing that discrimination and what needs to be done. And so it covers all of that from these children coming in through immigration who are ending up in our foster care system and the problems that they're having along with you as children who are already in the foster care system, right. who are already not getting taken care of. Remember, sleeping in break rooms, under desks, in motel rooms. I don't think anyone's paying taxes and thinks that's what I think is a good way to handle those foster kids. Right. So there's clearly an abundance of work ahead to resolve this and find homes and families for these foster kids. Um, what is, what is the, what is the solution that you see as most important right now, or that you'd like to just really highlight for people listening? Um, what comes to mind for you? What is it that you'd like to see the biggest change with? Well, there are actually three things that need to happen that will improve the foster care system. The first is adequate budgeting. Every time there's a problem with the states, the first place they go is welfare. They cut the budgets and that impacts foster kids. So there's less caseworkers. Less caseworkers mean that there's less time for the ones who are working to go visit the child to make sure the child's not getting beaten, the child is being fed properly. Look, we have kids in foster care who are being physically and sexually abused, who are being starved, who have died from starvation in foster care because someone didn't check on them because we didn't have enough bodies, because we didn't have the budget. And that's just not acceptable in a country with this much wealth for us to treat our children that way. And that's number one. And it's got to be a budget that doesn't go up and down because they didn't spend it all this year. It can't be treated like a regular government entity. You've got to have enough money left over and you've got to keep it going. So, well, maybe next year we have more kids. Happens all the time. But the way they do the budgets is, well, oh, you only spent you know, 4.9 million instead of 5 million, we're going to cut you back to 4.9 million next year. Well, I may need that 100,000 extra dollars because I get more kids in. So that's number one, adequate budgets. Number two, training. We need the money there so we can train these people. We can bring them in so we can get more staff. We can train the staff. And then number three is accountability because a lot of people are like, well, we put money into this. How do we know we're going to get our money's worth? Well, that's where number three, accountability comes in. We start, people actually might get punished for making mistakes, punished for not bringing a child in, punished for not do, having good management, and for doing some of these things that caseworkers have been found to be doing where they've lied, they've wow. taken children from parents illegally. These are Why? all things that we need someone to be accountable for. And so those are the three. And on a personal level, you know, for you know, be, uh, you know the book, I wrote the yeah. book in part because part of the proceeds from the book do go to my nonprofit, do allow us to take on the cases we do because we do them pro bono. That means free. 
And so this money goes, essentially, we're trying to raise money for us so that we can afford to have our staff to go do the work and solve these cases and get these children back to their family. Because at the end of the day, the bottom line is trying to get each and every child out of foster care back to a family, if at all possible, or get them into an adoption situation where they can be with a new family because it will be safer, healthier for them. Those are the two outcomes that we fight for. Well, I want to make sure everyone knows that you can purchase Richard's book with the link on screen right now. So for our audio only listeners, that is G-E-N-I dot U-S forward slash Richard Vyasana. And Vyas, am I even pronouncing that correctly? Or is it Vyasana? Is it Vyasana? Vyasana. Oh, I'm so sorry, Richard. Oh. Okay. Vyasana, Vyasana. Dang it. Okay. Uh, so Richard Vyasana. Richard is spelled just how it sounds. And then V-I-L-L-A-S-A-N-A. -L -L -A -A, Richard Viasana. Okay. My apologies, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so Richard, we started out today's show by, I was emphasizing that there's always hope. And of course, I know that this conversation, I mean, I, I'm, I am impressed with how tempered you can be talking about this because this is, this is very angering. This is, this is, this, this is not a, Yeah. So we don't need to talk about it, right? There's, this is, this is a horrible situation. So, um, but uh, you are a light in this situation, what you're doing and having written a book and, you know, helping other people to start to see that, wait a second, something's going on here, more needs to be done. <sighs> what kind of, um, what kind of hope can you see in this situation? Because I know you're not stopping this. You're not, you're not going to end doing what you're doing. You're still, you're going to continue. What, what kind of hope do you see in this situation? I'm glad you asked. Actually, the book specifically has a chapter and I made sure I put that in there of hope. And we also have a chapter that highlights and gives praise to people who are often overlooked in all this. Look, I want, it's so important for both of us to remember that there are thousands and thousands of people, those new people coming from college who are caseworkers, who put up with the terrible overburdened casework that they have to do, who drive at late at night past the time they should be at home with their own family, the foster parents who come in and take in children and do their best, the ones who adopt the children, all of those judges, the ones who say, you know what? I want you to do better for the children instead of just saying, you know, rubber stamping it. There are people out there who are making the system work. So as much as I've said it's bad, we have to look at the bad, but there is light and there is hope. There are people who are doing a fabulous job out there. And there are kids who write me and say, I did have a great foster parent. Thank you so much. I was adopted. I love my adopted parents. They're my mom and my dad. There are people who write these stories about that and let us know that, yes, it it does work. We just want to make it work better for more kids. Right. That's the bottom line. So it is not a system where we just say, you know what, that's it. Throw it all out. No, there's a lot of good that's going on. And again, I wanted to make sure I called out those people and gave them, you know, the praise that they really deserve that they will tell you, no, I'm not a hero, but they really are. 
Absolutely. They really are. Just, just as you are, you are absolutely a hero in this scenario. Um, and I want to make sure people know where they can go to connect with you. So you have a Facebook page on Facebook. It's family finding MX. If you were to do the at symbol family finding MX, you can find his page that way. But I think the title of the page is forever homes for foster kids, correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, um, would you like to say any, any, we're, we're nearing the end of our conversation, but would you like to say any words about your organization, Forever Homes for Foster Kids? Um, I know that's part of all of this, but anything extra you'd like to share? Just simply, we're very good at what we do. And we have been so blessed to be able to be brought in and to, you know, give our expertise to help these families, whether they're immigrant children or kids in foster care, however they come to us that we're able to reunite these kids. That's our whole mission is to do things in such a way that children have a better, brighter future. And that's what Forever Homes for Foster Kids is all about, is that forever home that these children can stop being moved around, can stop being abused, and can have the life that they really deserve. They did not do anything to be placed in the situation. And we as a society have made a contract to take care of them and we need to abide by that contract and do right by our children. If they are our future, right. honestly, we need to do more to act like that and to give these kids a chance. And before I let you go, I want to say one more thing, because uh, I love that you brought in the, you know, the, the social workers or all the people currently, uh, gaining degrees that are going to be able to support them in helping with situations like this and all those long hours and all this stuff that they put into it because they're so passionate. And I, I just need to say, remember to take care of yourself because if you don't take care of yourself, you can lose that passion because you burn out and then you can't help in the situation anymore. And so I, I just want to highlight the, the, the importance of self-care for all those people out there who are passionate about helping in situations like that. And Richard, I hope you are also taking care of yourself so you can continue to do what you do and be the light that you are. Well, thank you very much. Absolutely. Richard, I'm just going to drop you back down into the lobby for a moment while I close out the show and then I'll see you there again very soon. So thank you very much for being here today. And thank you for having me. Oh, Today was a very serious conversation about a very serious situation, right? People literally not having homes or families being forgotten about, overlooked, um, and a situation that so many people are not aware of the degree, how many people are in this situation. Um, I just want to take a moment to whatever came up for you in today's conversation, whether it be... I don't know whether it be you want to connect more with your own children. Maybe you want to take a look into helping, you know, kids in the foster system. Maybe you want to look into family finding. Maybe you want to look into, gosh, what does that mean? How can I learn more about this? Um, maybe inform someone that you know who's who's in a social work program. Hey, you know, this might be something you'd be interested in and maybe point them in that direction so they can learn more about it or connect with Richard, donate to a local organization. Uh, you know, another thing that came up for me, uh, a side hobby I have is I, I crochet and I recently found out that you can actually donate blankets to a um, to foster organizations for kids who 
don't have anything uh, substantial to keep with them. And, and anyway, there's lots of stories about how comforting a blanket can be. So just whatever you can do. Richard was bringing that up and I, and I love that. So anything that comes up for you today, I would just say, take a moment to heed that. Heed that takeaway, that inspiration, that insight, and, and know that whatever, whatever it is that you're feeling called to do is not too small. Anything you can do to help it all adds up just like all these people in all these different professions coming together to paint the bigger picture. It's, there's a lot of work ahead, but it's, it's inspiring to me to hear that people like Richard are out there in the world doing it. And so with that, let me know what you're taking away from today's conversation. Know that any difference you want to make in the world is never too small. There is always hope. And I'm wishing you a beautiful and brighter today, tomorrow, and I'll see you all again very, very soon. Thank you for being here today.